so in a lot of ways, these sort of representative governance issues, these issues of you know, democracy, are extremely important to health and public health and our ability to address these sort of issues. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, last month, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, released a report on U.S. life expectancy, finding that it increased from the last year from 76.4 to 77.5, a 0.9% increase, after declining for two years in a row and after steadily declining since World War II. Well, Vox did an excellent piece on the report, detailing the takeaways, including the impact of COVID-19, the rise of infant mortality, and how states compared to other countries on life expectancy. So, statistically, will we ever recover from the pandemic? And will we ever bypass other countries when it comes to life expectancy? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss the recent CDC report on life expectancy. We'll explore possible legal implications of the report, health, law, and ethics, and the political, environmental, and social influence on United States life expectancy. And to help us better understand this issue, we're joined today by Michael Ulrich. He is the Assistant Professor of Health Law, Ethics, and Human Rights at Boston University's School of Public Health and School of Law. His scholarship focuses on the intersection of public health, constitutional law, bioethics, and social justice with an emphasis on the role of law in health outcomes of marginalized and underserved populations. He also served as a bioethicist in the Division of AIDS at the National Institutes of Health, and he's been quoted liberally by the United States Supreme Court from his multitude of law review articles. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Well, Michael, give us a little bit of context here. How'd you get started in health law? So I actually went to law school to do health law and policy. Health is something that I have always kind of been drawn to, and frankly, it seemed to me that law was the best avenue for creating change, that it was going to be a necessary aspect of any changes in the system, especially at large population levels. And when I went to law school, I took public health law um, my first year and fell in love with that aspect in particular. Um, and it just sort of really blossomed from there. Well, you were a bioethicist at the Division of AIDS at NIH. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so bioethics is also something that I got interested in law school. I took some law and bioethics courses. And, you know, it was one of the things that, that, that drew me to it was a lot of unanswered questions, frankly, and figuring out how to do, you know, research ethically, especially in underdeveloped and developing countries and what sort of ethical obligations and requirements, you know, were there. There was also genomic research was becoming a lot more popular with a lot of growing questions. And so 
My interest in that kind of grew through that and my MPH program. And then I was fortunate enough to be hired at, at NIH um, where, you know, we were looking at a lot of global research and, and making sure that, you know, um, they were ethically done. But then also there was the uh, Mississippi baby where there was thoughts of there might be a, a cure. And so whether or not to or how much sort of funding to switch into cure research versus ARVs. And, and so it was a really interesting time. I was only there for a year because I, I was fortunate enough to get offered a, a fellowship at, at Yale Law School. And you, you don't turn those down. No, you don't. But, yeah. but you, <laughs> you mentioned the Mississippi baby. What's that about? Yeah. So um trying to think back. So this is around 2013, 2014-ish. There was a baby in Mississippi who they thought that there was a possibility that they cured from HIV because they couldn't find any traces of it. Um, they started uh, treating the baby very quickly after birth. And so there was questions of, you know, is this evidence that if you start to treat with AR ARVs, uh, antiretroviral um, therapy and medication earlier on, or, you know, certain dosages, are there ways then to potentially cure and, and rid somebody of HIV completely? Or is it something to where, um, you know, it's hiding somewhere in the body that we just couldn't necessarily find or detect? And if you were to remove somebody from that medication, it would build back up and then you would be able to uh, see it again. Wow. Results? Did it? Are we still studying that? I think it's still studied. I, I don't believe my understanding, and, and you know, this, this hasn't been my area of focus for for a little while. But uh, I don't believe that it ultimately was cured. Um, part of the difficulty of HIV is that it can be very difficult to detect. One of the benefits of the antiretroviral therapy that we have now is if you use it regularly, uh, it's very effective at d driving down viral loads. So much so that they're basically undetectable. But as far as I know, that does not mean that it, it, you're actually cured of it. And so you have to stay on those medications as opposed to taking it for a certain amount of time would eliminate it and then you could stop the medication and, and not have it come back. But if you stay on the medication, you still um, are able to, to keep those viral loads low. Yeah, good. Well, that transitions us into the, the reason we're here today to talk about the CDC report on life expectancy. I'm sure AIDS and HIV play a part of it, as does the recent pandemic. But looking and reading the articles on it, this seems like it's been going on since World War II that the life expectancy has been dropping in the United States. Yeah, I you know, one of the, the things that public health ha has really demonstrated what is that um, our greatest achievements in extending life was earlier on because things like sanitation, antibiotics, these sort of you know vaccinations are ways that you could really have a great impact on a wide, wide swath of the population. And, you know, so preventing and minimizing the effects of disease, which really was sort of the, you know, biggest driver uh, of death um, for, for most of our country's history, after that, you start to shift into things like cancer and heart disease and, you know, things that relate more to human behavior. And it's a lot harder than to, you know, essentially get people to do the things that are good for them and not do the things that are bad for them. A lot of that requires, you know, 
individual change, which again is going to make it more difficult to have these sort of large scale impacts on life expectancy. We still were doing a, a pretty good job up until you know the opioid crisis and then the COVID-19. And that's where we really started to see huge drops in life expectancy. And so even though our, our increases were not as significant or as great of an increase as they were in the past, this was really the having such a significant drop in life expectancy was really something new for for um, the, this country, but you know, especially for COVID um, happening worldwide. Right. Well, let's talk about individual responsibility and electoral responsibility. I mean, some one of the articles that I think it was Vox pointed out that we have in terms of both the opioid crisis approvals by the uh, FCC or FTC, and we have our elected officials' response to COVID and vaccine deniers, how does the how does the interplay of our elected officials' decision play with our individual decisions as pandemics come and crises like opioids and HIV? You know, they're they're related, but you know, in some ways you could point to to slightly different aspects of it for opioid and COVID. And so, you know, taking opioids first. It's one of the things that that people sometimes refer to as deaths of despair. People turning to unhealthy behavior, alcohol, drugs, suicide, because of poor mental health, poor living conditions, these sort of things that, you know, sort of leaves people feeling like there's really no reason to live or try to live a healthy life. And so there are these underlying conditions that lead to the ultimate choice or decision or result that, you know, you end up turning to, again, suicide or drugs or alcohol at an abusive level. And so for COVID, it was similar in the sense that many of the people in the populations that had difficulties um, with morbidity, but especially mortality with COVID, were people that had underlying conditions, you know, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, things like that. And so again, those conditions are already in place, right? People that have those health problems before COVID gets there, you know, there are a lot of reasons that they end up with those health problems before. And it's that much more difficult than when you have, um, you know, such a huge pandemic that touches so many people to sort of address just COVID, let alone all of these other things that are, are leading to the poor health outcomes. Well, Michael, at this point in time, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? 
InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by Michael Ulrich. He's the Assistant Professor of Health Law, Ethics, and Human Rights at Boston University School of Public Health and School of Law. When talking about the responsibilities of individuals and our elected officials, and I think you're right to observe that, you know, we come into these pandemics and these situations preloaded with a set of things that we probably shouldn't have the obesity and diabetes and so forth, all individual choices or at least individual situations. How does this drop in life expectancy in the United States then compare to the, the life expectancy globally? It appears from the articles that it's quite different. Yeah, part of the, the difference, I think, with the United States versus many other countries, especially high-income and developed countries, is you know, the complexity and cost of our healthcare system. And then also going back to thinking about elected officials, where we tend to put our money and resources. So we're very focused on healthcare, medicine, advancing, improving technology, which is not to say that those things aren't useful. But again, thinking back to sort of population impact uh, versus, you know, smaller population impact, large versus small, uh, you know, those are just inherently going to have reached a smaller population, right? Not everybody, especially because we don't have universal health care, universal health insurance coverage, not everybody's going to be able to access the best medicine and health care and all of the advances in technology. Whereas, you know, other countries, one, you have universal health coverage in pretty much every other country. There are ways to access that health care in a more efficient process. But then, too, they also put more investment resources into other aspects and population levels, social determinants of health, frankly, right, that can have a much larger influence than trying to address things uh, after the fact, right? So medicine is inherently somewhat curative, right? You have a problem, we're trying to fix it, whereas public health looks at not just population level, but trying to prevent something from happening or at least mitigate the impact of something when it does happen. And frankly, other countries just put more focus, energy, and resources into that sort of thing than we do here in the United States. What steps can the United States take to improve its health system? Would you suggest, just as a first point, uh, removing the profit motive from the health system from top to bottom? I I think that there are a lot of credible arguments as to why that might be useful. I think that the practical question, though, of how we would make such a significant shift is really important and a really, frankly, difficult one to answer because we have so many different stakeholders and players in our healthcare system that it's not as easy to say or point to hospitals, right, or providers. We we need to change their profit structure and profit motive, right? Or it's just insurance companies, right? There are so many different layers with, you know, the two that I named, but also, you know, pharmaceutical companies. Um, and so 
and they carry a lot of sway. So I think that that might be useful, but I don't think it's also the only way that we can improve our healthcare system or make it easier to access for again, a, a bigger uh, population of people. Right. Well, the CDC report uh, tells us that there has been a significant impact on racial and ethnic groups, at least within the, in the United States. I'm not sure how it is globally. And there's been a big effect on infant mortality. How does that play into our, our life expectancy and what can be done to improve it? Yeah. So if you look at, you know, one of the other things that we are extremely bad at in this country is maternal and child health. Right? So especially maternal mortality and, and morbidity. And so part of the problem that we have is when people are pregnant, we don't have a way to easily get them to access vitamins, information on what to do and what not to do you know, ways to find out even that you're pregnant at the earliest possible date. And then you place on top of that the, you know, political focus on things like abortion access and contraceptives and um, sex education and the Dobbs decision. And all of those things create a problem where the focus, especially in states that frankly do have extremely poor maternal and infant health rates are they're so focused on restricting abortion and reproductive services access that it is only going to exacerbate the problems that they already have, let alone the ability to address and improve it. And so at some point, we as a country need to really shift into focusing on how do we create healthy pregnancies and how do we create access to reproductive services though we are poor across the board it is especially poor women women of color and black women in particular especially in the south that have just astronomical numbers of poor maternal health and, and mortality and so we really need to do a better job of thinking through how to create easier access to what's necessary to, one, not get pregnant in the first place if you don't want to become pregnant. Two, if you are pregnant, find out as early as possible without any sort of criminal uh, ramifications, access and increase, you know, make it easier to access reproductive services so that you can be healthy. And then the resources to have a healthy delivery and you know, access services thereafter, right? I mean, you know, the sort of birth of a child is not in and of itself then going to ensure that the woman stays healthy and stays alive after that birth or the the infant um, is going to stay healthy and stay alive after that birth. Well, how do you address the political divide that exists in this country? I mean, there seems to be a majority of people that are in favor of, we've had the Ohio Constitution Amendment, but yet we've had the folks that are in power moving to limit that and strike those things. So there's, there's a, a difference between the power and the votes. How, how do we address that? Yeah, and this is something that I have been thinking about and started to work on a little bit more and talk about in, in you know, really all of my work, regardless of sort of the specific area that I'm talking about, 
is this this connection that you mentioned. And I think part of that is thinking through, if we're focused on and worried about health outcomes and public health, we need to also then be talking about voting rights and gerrymandering and these sort of things. Because if you look at abortion uh, rights, for example, and, and there's differences on how you frame that question, but just sort of taking it at a general level. And I think, as you pointed out, it's reflected in some of these ballot initiatives in different states. A majority of people support abortion rights and, and at least some access to abortion services, especially when they are in emergency situations for women who wanted to become pregnant, who intended to carry their um, pregnancy to term, but because of medical reasons, that's sort of the standard of care. And so what we're seeing then is, frankly, elected officials that aren't representing the you know majority of their citizens, and they don't have to, because again, part of the strategy for and behind things like gerrymandering and restricting access to voting, whether it be, you know, limiting, uh, you know, voting through mail or limiting polling locations, all of those things, is to insulate elected officials so that they don't have to be responsive to a majority. And so in a lot of ways, these sort of representative governance issues, these issues of, you know, democracy are extremely important to health and public health and our ability to address these sort of issues. In a way, it's almost taxation without representation. Yeah, right. In some ways. I mean, you know, the, 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 the point of representative governance is supposed to be if we don't like what you're doing and what you're doing is not reflective of the will of the majority, then we'll vote you out and put somebody else in who will do that. And, you know, the Constitution places limits on your ability to, you know, oppress or you know, punish sort of minority populations. But again, in general, that's supposed to be the point. And yet, if you can maintain a majority, for example, if you can maintain 60% of a state's electorate uh, or legislative body with only 40% of the vote, you only have to appeal then to 40% or you only have to appeal to certain populations in certain areas of that state. You know, the Electoral College is, is um, you know, an example at the national level. And so I think that there are growing concerns about what elections really mean for most of us when you can point to, at the state level, perhaps certain counties or cities that really determine who wins and who loses, or at the national level, you know, certain states that determine who wins and who loses. Right. Well, Michael, it's time for another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. 
And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm back with Professor Michael Ulrich from BU's School of Public Health and School of Law. We've been talking about the interplay of politics and elections, but let's talk about culture and environmental and the social aspects. I mean, there are some social justice aspects to this and some concerns that really need to be spoken about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because with any sort of poor health outcomes type of issue that we have in this country, you can almost always point to then there being racial and ethnic disparities in terms of who suffers disproportionately. And so, again, if you look at things like COVID, right, people of color tended to suffer more. But part of the reason was COVID-related aspects, access to vaccines and understandings of the safety of and efficacy of those vaccines, but also the issues that were there, uh, you know, before COVID that were pre-existing in terms of disparities, again, for hypertension, heart disease, access to healthy foods, diabetes, all of those sort of things. And so, again, figuring out policies, not only that improve the health of our country in general, but really, you know, the, the populations that need it most. And I think if you look at the sort of countrywide numbers of the amount of money that we put into healthcare, which is the most in the world, but our sort of middling, mediocre at best outcomes for that, it's because we have these really large population sets that, you know, don't benefit from that money again because of where we're putting it. And so if we want to address health disparities, we really need to focus on those groups. But again, it connects back to how well represented are they and how much are elected officials accountable to those populations. Um, sort of questions whether or not we'll actually be able to achieve that, at least in the, in the near future. All right. Let's shift to the third branch of government here for a moment. We've seen lawsuits from children challenging election elected officials' actions or failure to act over climate change. What are the possible legal implications of this report on the decrease in life expectancy and all the problems that we've been talking about. Is there a lawsuit here? I am not sure. Um, so, you know, I, I think one of the uphill battles is, you know, figuring out what you can point to, to say, here's where the government owes us something. And part of the difficulty, at least at a constitutional level, is Rights in our country, and this is another thing that distinguishes the United States from um, many other countries, especially other democracies, is our constitution is built around negative rights. So they limit what the government can and can't do, but we don't really have positive rights that create, or at least not constitutionally, that create obligations for the government to do something. So here is this problem, climate change, here are all the negative impacts of it. I can point to this constitutional right to say you, government, now have an obligation because of it to do something. And we just, we don't have that here. And so what you need to find then is statutory obligations that you can point to. Because if the government passes a statute that says we will do these things to address this issue and they don't, then you can um, potentially sue. Um, you know, there are issues of standing and, uh, you know, with climate change, part of the difficulty is, you know, how do you show the harm that you're suffering if the harm is sort of down the line and in the future? And that's not to say that these 
lawsuits don't have a, a chance uh, of winning or you know, moving forward. But I think it is certainly at the very least an uphill battle because, again, the way that United States is, is we're much more about our rights limiting government action than creating obligations for the government to do something. And so it's just hard to say you have to do these things to address climate change. Right. Well, what remedies do we have? It's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think that looking at things like environmental regulations, I think, are really important. The problem, I really don't want to be uh, too much of a pessimist here, but, you know, with things like the, the West Virginia case about the Clean Air Act last year, major questions doctrine creates a, a even more difficult hurdle then to say, you know, even if you can point to something and say, look, government, EPA, you have to do things to help keep our air clean. Now there is kind of an extra barrier potentially with major questions doctrine to say, well, anything that you as an agency might do to address a big issue and address it in a significant way now can be categorized as a major questions. And so we're going to need explicit authorization from Congress to that agency to deal with that. You know, I, I think that that isn't going to necessarily stop agencies from trying to address things like climate change. But I think things like clean air, clean water, uh, you know, I think also state attorneys general are trying to move to see and push the boundaries of what they can do in their states. California, for example, you know, I, I think is always trying to lead in this category and, and increase regulations on car emissions and things of that nature. So I, I think that there are opportunities, but I think in some ways we're still trying to sort of figure that out because I think, you know, a shift to renewable energy, which is what at least some aspect of that West Virginia Supreme Court case was about, the, the Supreme Court striking that down really makes it uh, a lot more difficult than um, for agencies, the EPA in particular, to sort of move without having to rely on, you know, Congress to agree on something and, and pass something themselves. Yeah, sounds like a difficult situation. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program. So let me ask you, what question didn't I ask that I should have? I thought all of your questions were great and perfect and exactly what you should have asked. I'll just add, I think, Part of the difficulty that we're, that we're really having in this country is, is really a cultural one. You know, the United States in general is a very sort of individualistic liberty type of culture, which is not problematic in and of itself. But, you know, one of the things that I was hoping um, might come from COVID, despite all of the, the terrible um, things that happened from it, was sort of highlighting and helping people to see that whether it's either at an individual level or a state level or frankly, a, a, a you know, national level, really can't isolate ourselves as much as we might want or think or hope that we can. We all influence the health of each other. And that is just something that is not going to change, right? We can't close off borders. Something that is on the other side of the world can get here relatively quickly. And I don't think that we grasp that fully from COVID, unfortunately. And I think that it could be a real barrier to the next pandemic that, that comes. But I think that cultural aspect, seeing that 
we have a, a connection, we, you know, impact each other, whether we like it or not, is something that we're going to have to recognize a lot more. And I think in doing that, it opens the door then to see, you know, things like social determinants and gerrymandering and how all of these things are interconnected and, and sort of moving forward with laws and policies that really protect and represent what people want. Well, Michael, as we wrap up, I'd like to thank you for being on our show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, here's a few of my thoughts about today's topic. You know, certainly our political divide and our cultural divide in our country has contributed greatly to infant mortality and maternal mortality and decreased life expectancy among poor and rural communities here in the United States. And it's a shame that as the richest country in the world, we have one of the most difficult health systems to navigate. We have, I think, uh, Professor Ulrich for the first time pointed out really the interplay of public health with your vote and gerrymandering and some of the other issues. I'm sure his law review articles will lead to some very interesting reading. Well, that's it for Craig's rant on today's topic. Let me know what you think. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.